0: All right. Are you ready? <laughs> I don't know if there was a lot of late nights. This is we are very subdued today. Yeah. I, I, is everyone? I mean, you know, I'm not just trying to generate noise for the sake of it. I just, want to, I just kind of, I just, I think I'm feeling pastoral.ly Is everyone okay? You know, um, yeah, I'm sure you all are. Well, you will, you will be after you looked in the Bible because the Bible is wonderful. The Bible is God's word, and um, I'm convinced that people's lives are changed through preaching. Yeah, I'm going to preach my heart out to you for the next half an hour or so, so I'm going to pray, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Lord, we just thank you for your presence here. Just come and breathe on us again, Lord, through the preached word, we pray. Thank you, your word is alive, it's active, it goes to work in us. When it's preached, it goes to work in us. It's not a static thing, but it runs all through our heart and brings life. And we just pray, Lord, let your word run through us today. We pray people's lives will be changed here today. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to start a three-week series from today. And um, it's like a mini-series. And if it goes really well, we'll carry it on. (laughs) Um, And it'll be up until... So it'll be today, then the 19th and the 26th. and on the 2nd of November, we've got a very big Sunday. We've got Dave Stroud coming to visit, who he kind of oversees the churches and our movement for the UK. He's a great guy, and he'll really bring something that will help us as a church. So uh, cross that one out in your diary. You know, don't, you know, I don't know, don't go on holiday or anything on the 2nd of November. Be here for that. It's going to be a great day. But for the next three weeks in advance, we're going to start a series that's called Destroying Unbelief and Receiving Faith. Um, just through some things I feel like the Lord's been speaking to my own life about, and for us as a church, we'll, that will all come out as a preach, but that's where we're going. It's going to be kind of a militant series. Um, some of you will be feeling nervous already. <laughs> You'll be thinking, it sounds a bit wacky, or it sounds a bit out there. Well, we'll see as we go. Um, I feel God's going to do a great thing through it. God loves faith. He loves it. And God gives faith. It's a gift from God. It's not a psychological state that you work yourself up into. It's a supernatural gift. It's something that God gives. You can't say it to someone believe, believe. It. You know, it doesn't work like that. God gives faith, and yet God loves it. You might think, well, why is God so loving it in us if He's the one who gives it? It's kind of like if, let's imagine I um, It's Christmas time's coming, and I think I want the kids to be able to get me a nice present, and so I want to get, I don't know, a DVD, a particular film I want to get, maybe Cinderella Man, great film. Uh, I think I love that film. I want that film for Christmas, so I buy it, wrap it up, write on the label, To Daddy from Levi, and then Christmas comes, and he goes, there you go, Dad. I go, oh, man, it's great. I'm full of pleasure, not just because I like Cinderella Man, but because I love Levi, and he's given me it. Now although I gave him it first, yeah, the fact that he's given it to me still brings me pleasure. And that's how it works with faith. Comes from God, but actually when we begin to walk in and exercise faith out of a sense of wanting to please him and love him, he loves it as our father. So the faith is a big deal in God. Um, it brings him glory and it brings him pleasure. Um, in fact Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this, without faith it's impossible to please God. So, you want to live a life that pleases God. You want to work out how can I, you know, how, did, how is God pleased? It's through faith. And then it goes on to say, because whoever draws near to him must, number one, believe that he exists. Yeah, makes sense. And number two, that he rewards those who seek him. Another way of putting that is this is that he's good. That the things you come and pray for, he's going to give you. You know, the Bible is clear that the Christian life, a big part of it should be answered prayer clearly answered, not just on out random, that could have happened anyway, answered prayer. Which is a massive challenge, but it's all through the Bible. When the Bible says that God wants to answer prayer, it doesn't mean that he says yes and no sometimes. That's not what the Bible means. When it says God answers prayer, it means he says yes and gives you it. Obviously, there's a big issue around what we ask for. There'll be certain things I'll give my kids, certain things I want. So you've got to be wise in terms of what you're asking for. But if you are asking for things that glorify him, things that are about his kingdom, things that are good, the answer is yes. So God loves it. When we come to him with that confidence, I know I'm going to get this. That is faith. That is what God loves. Unbelief deeply grieves him. Now what is unbelief? I looked it up on my little kind of, got this computer thing, you can look up the original words, what does it mean? It can mean, it's two different words are used for unbelief. The first word is this, an absence of faith. So it's just a, a sense of there's no, you know, no faith. The second word is this. It's the, a willful resistance. I don't want to believe God. Both of those things are called unbelief and both are warned against and both grieve God. It says in Hebrews 10 verse 38, if, our, if we shrink back, if we don't believe him, if we shrink back, God says, my soul has no pleasure in that person. Now that can sound harsh, but we need to take it apart and work out why. Why does it? Why does Saint God say I've got my soul, God, my pleasure in you? If we're constantly drawing back, Let's imagine for a moment again, my children, because this is how it works. Because there's a father-son relationship between us and God. That's why these illustrations work. Imagine that my children didn't want to come near me because they weren't totally confident that I was going to do them good. Yeah? Are they going to? they flinch when they come near me? What would happen in my heart? I'd be like, ah, you think I'm going to hit you. Well, they didn't run up to me when I came indoors from awesome work it was like oh, mate it's him I went upstairs yeah what would I be like what? what would I be thinking I'd be thinking things like what have I done I'd be thinking things like what? what has caused this reaction what because the natural reaction is that they should run into your arms something's happened the confidence has been broken and you see, this is why it grieves God this is why when we shrink back and we actually don't believe God wants to say yes don't believe God's for us don't believe God's going to answer our prayers it's like us saying oh mate it's in. What can I do to stay away? And it grieves his heart. It grieves his heart. He says, you're my child. Unbelief is a thief. Because it slanders God's character. Unbelief says he's not that good. Unbelief says he's not that generous. Unbelief says he doesn't really want to bless. Unbelief, it throws up all those kinds of doubts. So it slanders God's character. So it therefore robs him of the glory he should be getting from our hearts and our lives. We should boast in him. We should be totally excited about him. But when we're kind of in a place of unbelief, we're no longer convinced of that. It slanders his character. And so it robs him of glory. And not only that, it robs us of the fullness of life that can only be experienced through intimacy with him. Yeah? Because we stay away. Because we're not convinced. That's a massive deal. It's a massive deal. We're going to look over the next three weeks, I think, at 14 symptoms and effects of unbelief and hit them, bang, knock them down, knock them down, knock them down, because it's through faith that we inherit God's promises. The Bible's clear, Hebrews 6 verse 12, through faith and patience, basically so, continuing to believe, that's how you come into God's inheritance, the things he's promised. They don't just drop into your lap. They don't just fall in fulfilled. God says, I promise this to you, and then we say, right, I'm going to get hold of you for this, God. It's dynamic, it's exciting, that's the Christian life. All of us here have the choice whether or not we tolerate unbelief. If you tolerate it, it will dominate. Okay? If you tolerate it, it will dominate. It will affect everything about you. We have a decision. Will we tolerate it in our lives? Will we just let it go by unchecked? Or are we going to say, right, I'm going to knock this down. Because this is keeping me from a place of robust confidence in God. If you're here and you're not a believer, then I would dare to suggest that the whole tenor of your life is marked by unbelief. You may not be hostile to God or hostile to Christianity because many people who aren't Christians aren't hostile. But actually, let's look at at your life, the way you work, the way you think and really what we find is is that the whole direction is really guided by natural senses rather than faith, confidence in God. And it can manifest in different ways. It can manifest in cynicism or scepticism or just apathy, a lack of interest in spiritual things or even hostility or mockery. It can manifest in any kind of... But the root is unbelief. And just because the majority of people on the planet are in that place doesn't mean it's okay. You can tend to think, well, I'm in the majority, so it's okay. No, it's not okay. It's sinful. It's very sinful. It's not good. You need to repent of it so that you can be forgiven and come into a relationship with God. Absolutely. I'm not going to pretend or cut around or pretend it's different. That's how it is. It's a deeply grievous thing. You were made for a relationship with Him. You were made to know Him you were made to walk with him that's what, you're for. that's what you're made for but for Christians it's still a massive battle isn't it or is it just me <laughs> is it just me I don't think it is all through the bible there is encouragement to believe God and warning don't fall into unbelief don't 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 because it's a massive massive battle and we're gonna, I'm going to get right under your skin God's getting under my skin so I think right, why should this lot get away with it I'm going to get under your skin so we can work this stuff through together and work out what, what it is and how it works. You see, how, how comes life as a Christian, you see, surely you think, surely that all goes when you get saved, you come into a relationship with God, the unbelief gets wiped away. It doesn't work like that. Why not? Here's why. Imagine that you're a piece of land. And um, <laughs> when you become a Christian, the ownership of that land gets completely transferred. Okay? So let's imagine this land has got an old warehouse on it and a couple of sheds over here and a bike rack there and a few other things. And someone says, I want to buy that land and I want to clear it and build something totally different. Okay, Now imagine you're that bit of land. When you became a Christian, the ownership changed instantly. You instantly belonged to Jesus, yes? yeah, You became his. However, the warehouse that was there before was still on the land. Yeah? The sheds that were there before, even though the land has been bought, the sheds are still there. The bike rack is still there. Once the land has been bought, then it's time like, let's clear this, take this down, move this out of the way so we can establish on the land what we want on the land. It's exactly the same. Before you were a Christian, either because of your own sinfulness, also because you live in an environment of unbelief, also maybe because of particular things you've taken on, or maybe even your own stubbornness, all kinds of stuff, you build shrines to unbelief everywhere. Okay? All over you, just shrines, ways of thinking, outlook, perspective. You get saved. That doesn't necessarily mean those shrines instantly come down. And you say, right now, God, what, what in terms of the way I think, the way I go about things, doesn't glorify you, is out of place in the kingdom because we're going to pull them down and we're going to replace them with biblical thinking. yeah? Yeah, that's how it works. Our whole life, it should be constantly bringing ourselves to God, saying, Lord. You've promised this, it's not happening. What is, what is happening in the way I'm thinking that is kind of causing these barriers and blockages? Why is it that when we pray for the sick so much they don't get healed? What's going on there? Let's face up to it. That's what happens most of the time, but it shouldn't, biblically. It should not happen. So why? Why is it, God, that you say you want to make me more and more like Jesus, and yet for the last 20 years there's been this part of my life which is totally unchristlike like and I'm not getting through on it? That's not God's will. God's will is to change that. But you've got to face up to it and ask the questions, why? You've got to be willing to just admit and confess and be humble on certain things. So as a church, we're going to go on a seek and destroy mission over these next three weeks, and maybe longer. Trying to find those shrines to unbelief and knocking them down so we can begin to build faith. You like that? hope you do. I hope you do, because it's going to be a good time. (laughs) It's it's a massive battle. It's a massive battle for all of us. So on what grounds really? Where does the battle rage? The battle rages around where God makes his promises. Here's the Christian life in a nutshell. Um, here's what it is, here's what it isn't. What it isn't is obeying rules. This is massive. So many Christians still conduct their Christian life as if they're in a law covenant with God. A law covenant is what? It's this. God says, you do this. If you do it, I'll bless you. If you don't do it, I'm going to punish you. That's how many many Christians do. Of course you think, you know, I keep into the rules. I'm starting reading a book called The Year of Living Biblically. Anyone read it? Total... <laughs> You lot are uneducated Philistines. No, uh, to- I mean, total secular guy. It's a human, it's a funny, it's not a Christian book, it's a funny thing. But he decided for a year, he would try to follow the Bible to the letter. Everything. Is, it, you know, it's hilarious, but his he's, total lack of spiritual understanding in the way he's doing it, bless him, but it's, just, it's funny. I mean, it's got photos in the front of him at the start with no beard, and at the end, his huge beard and his huge hair uh, over the year. It's fantastic, great thing. But, um... <laughs> Very, very, very funny. But there's no understanding of how it works with God. No understanding of covenant and all that. Many Christians live in no understanding. They just think, well, it's about trying to do good. It's about trying to please God. No. The dynamic of the Christian life is that God makes you promises from the Bible and you spend your life as a Christian laying hold of him for those promises and coming into them. It's an exciting dynamic. It's not just God saying, don't do this, don't do that. It's God saying, I've got this for you. And I see in the promise, get motivated and, motivate and saying, yeah, I'm going to go for that. And anything in me that's going to get in the way of that, out of the way, out of the way, I want the glory, yeah? That's what it is. That's the Christian life. That's what it, sh- that's what it should be like. Um, I hope this like that for you. Um, and so God makes these promises. And Satan, who basically, just to say as well, in case you're wondering, yes, I am utterly convinced of the existence of Satan. Um, because you may, have, you may think you know, may be new here you may think what do these guys believe as much as I believe that God exists I believe that Satan exists a very real spirit being who once was an angel who rebelled against God through pride wanting to be like God God cast out of heaven he took a third of the angels with him, and they now are what we would describe as evil spirits or demons I don't think there is any way you can read your newspapers or watch the TV with, with sober view and deny his existence, so much of the evil that goes on is completely irrational, completely illogical, total mayhem and chaos, Satan is very, very real, and Satan's biggest fear is fruitful Christians, because God has decided in his wisdom to advance his kingdom through Christians, right, that's God's plan, we are the body of Christ, Jesus is the head, we are the body, so Jesus expresses himself through his body, who is the church, yeah, so that's God's plan. And so Christians that get it, wake up to it, deal with the unbelief, get in a good place with God, are hugely challenging to the works of Satan and the works of darkness in the world. And so Satan really panics at this point. And so he sends one of his generals into the fray who is called unbelief. Okay? He says, right, you're going to go into the fray and your job is to really get those Christians to think that what God's promised is not really going to do. Alright? Or they can believe that he does it in another country, just not in their own country. Or they can believe that God did it in another time, but just not in their time. Or they can believe that God will do it in their life next year, but not today. Anything to keep you from a place of genuinely believing God for the here and now. Because that's where the power is. Tomorrow never comes. There's no point saying, well, tomorrow I'll deal with it. It doesn't come because tomorrow becomes today. And tomorrow's still there. And so actually God wants us to be in a place of robust faith where we say, I'm getting hold of you today, God, for this. And I wanted to get out on a limb and press forward and make a fool of myself because I believe you. I believe you cannot lie. And unbelief will use anything from faulty theology, bad Bible interpretation. People say, oh yeah, well the miracles don't happen anymore. This is for that time. Rubbish. Just nonsense. Nothing in the Bible that says that. We use disappointment. Well, I prayed for the sick five times and none of them got healed. Surely God's not going to use me like that. No, press on. Press on. It's through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. Or through an unbiblical worldview, you know. We just see everything in terms of materialistic. We don't have any room in our mind for spiritual realities. We need to come out of that. It's going to hold us back. And the sole aim of Satan is to destroy our confidence in God, his faithfulness and his promises. Okay? That's the plan. That's how it works. Simon Holly was here two weeks ago. Many of you remember that. I'm going to be very honest with you as a church as to what he said to, what he said to me about the church. I said, Simon, tell me your impressions of the church. He said, I thought the church was full of joy, a wonderful community, fantastic vibrant praise. I said, yeah, come on, hit me with it. Because <laughs> I'm thinking I want to learn, I want to grow. He said, as I'm preaching, I felt a wall of unbelief. He said, your church was more excited about people getting up and giving notices than they were about my testimonies of healing. And you know what? I thought, yeah, you're right. You're right. And what rose in me was a mixture of um, righteous anger, not with you, with the devil, and excitement. I thought, we're going to go for this. We're not going to live under this. Not going to do it. We're going to go for all that God has for us. There's no two ways about it. We need to be like the man in the Gospel of Mark whose boy was demonised and you know, all the disciples tried to cast out a demon and none of them could do it and Jesus came and, and then the man says, if you can help me. Jesus says, if. <laughs> I love it. Jesus says, if. Jesus says, all things are possible for him who believes. And then the man says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Honest. We do believe, don't we? Those of you that are Christians, I know you believe. But look, we struggle with unbelief, don't we? We need to say, God, help my unbelief. Just be humble. Just be honest. That's what we need to do. Okay, you ready? Turn to your Bibles to the book of Numbers. That was just the intro. We're going to be here for days. I've asked the guys to cook up a hot meal for 5pm, so it's all good. Okay. The symptoms and effects of unbelief. Numbers chapter 13, verse 25. It's near the front. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. I'll tell the story, a little bit of background, then we'll read the text, and then we've got 14 different symptoms of unbelief. We won't do them all today. Okay. We may do one or two. So, here's a story so far. A um, bit of background for you. So, we're picking up the people of Israel there in the wilderness. They've been rescued from Egypt by God's mighty hand, and God has used Moses as their leader, come through the Red Sea, um, and God has promised them somewhere, the land of Canaan, it's called the promised land, that's how they refer to it, and God has said it's a land flowing with milk and honey, so loads of cattle and stuff, beautiful, you know, vegetation, fruit, it's a beautiful thing for you, and um, God says, here's the point, here's the point, here's the point, the promised land was a big deal because God had promised it to them, that's the big deal. When we believe God for things and we overcome unbelief, it must be in light of what God's promised to us. There's no point getting into a big battle Well, I'm gonna believe God for a private jet. He hasn't promised you that. (laughs) It's not gonna happen. Okay? So and, and you may laugh. You may laugh. I mean there have been Christian conferences built on such premises. They really have. It's nonsense. We exercise faith to come into the things that God has promised for us. What has God promised? Things like Christ-likeness, fruitfulness, things like, um, I, did, I believe, um, deliverance from demonic strongholds, physical healing. I think it's an area for huge battle. I think the Bible promises that. God has promised us these things. We've got to fight for them. God has promised us that we'll have an impact on this community. We'll see many people saved. We need to fight for it. So the promises we come into. So so God has promised um, the land of Canaan. They get close to it, and then God says, "Right, let's choose twelve guys, one from each tribe, and you go into the land. And for forty days, you spy out the land, and they just bring us a report back of what the land's like." So these twelve guys, they go out and they come back forty days later. We'll pick it up in Numbers chapter 13, verse 25. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. So they've spied out the promised land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. However... The people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large, and besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, Anak was like a giant. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb, who was one of the, one of the twelve, he quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him, so the other ten spies, they said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. They had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. That's how we seemed to them. Then... All the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. This is the fruit of unbelief, man. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we died in the land of Egypt or would that we died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Listen to it, man. Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Wouldn't it be better of us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, they're the two good spies who were among those who had spied out the land. They tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord and don't fear the people of the land for they're bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Don't fear them. Then all the congregation said to them to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. What a story. What a story what a contrast between the ten spies and the two spies, yeah? You've got to understand this because um, the ten spies and the two spies, they saw the same thing. But what they concluded was worlds apart. Because one group were in faith, the other group were in unbelief. And your perception of a situation is dictated much more by your perception than it is of the actual situation very often. It's a massive thing. It's a massive. Look at this. The focus of the 10 is on the occupants, on the cities. They just see these huge people, these massive walls, and then in the light of that, they see themselves and they think, we're done for. The focus of the 2 is on the Lord, on his promises, on the fruit, on the potential. And then themselves, and everyone else in the light of that. Totally shaped by what God has said. Totally shaped by who the Lord is. The ten see the occupants as giants and attackers. The two see the occupants as bread to be eaten. What a contrast. So ten, The ten are saying, they're huge. They're going to destroy us and our family. Joshua and Caleb said, they're bread for us. What is that? One's faith, the other's unbelief. The ten see themselves and their families as bread to be eaten. Victim mentality. Unbelief. The two see themselves and the people as conquerors. Come on, let's do it. Let's go up at once. I love it. Let's get on with it. There's a job to be done. God's going to give us this land. Come on! You can tell unbelief because it sits back. It sits back. Oh, tomorrow. Caleb's like, let's go. Let's do it. Ground to be taken. God has promised. Totally different. Totally different. Same situation, completely different perspective. The perspective of the ten is shaped by their natural senses. The perspective of the two is shaped by what God has said. Unbelief is so terribly rational. It's so they could have done a slideshow, the unbelief guys. Look at that city. Look at that guy. Look at his muscles. Zoom in. It's so rational. Look at those. He could take out ten of us, just that one guy. Psh, yeah, you could just you spend hours and everyone's going, yeah, yeah. Because it's so rational. And it's so contagious. Did you notice how contagious it is? Did you know how many Israelites there were in the wilderness? They reckon around two million. Ten guys bring this disease back <laughs> and go, there you go, guys. Everyone goes, Whoa! everyone's weeping, crying, I mean, it's just chaos, why? It's contagious, unbelief is terrible, it's terrible, it's a horrible, horrible thing. Why? At its heart, what's the big problem with unbelief? It ignores God. It has, now it may, it may, I mean, these Israelites, I'm sure they would have said, no we believe in God, but, but, at its heart, God does not feel the vision, the picture, the horizon. There's not a sense of, but look at God. Look at who he is. Look at what he said. Look at his promises. Can he lie? Of course not. There's no sense of that with unbelief. That all gets put down the pecking order, down the list, because, oh, look. That's why it's so bad. How many Christians, how many churches, actually are like that? It's a frightening thought. It's a frightening thought. No real reverence for the glory of God. No real reverence for the ability of God. No real reverence that God can break through. No real sense of expectation. God's gonna do it. Sitting back, waiting, watching, will he? If he God does it, then I'm jumping in. That's not how it works, folks. That's not how it works. It doesn't work like that. Well, we'll see if God does it then. No. Joshua and Caleb like, let's go up at once and do it. God has spoken. God brought us here as a church. Not to just sing songs and make a noise on a Sunday morning. But to see many, many people's lives changed by the gospel. That's why we're here. That is why we are here. That is why we do Alpha. That is why we do Beta, to build those new converts and people that have joined us into the faith. That is why we're here. We go up at once and we do it. We don't sit back, wait, waver, hesitate. No, we, we are here because God has called us here. We've got the promises. We don't need anything else. We don't, we, we've got the promises. If you ignore God as your starting point, it all goes wrong. If you said to me, Steph, I'm at St Paul's Cathedral, I want to come to Revelation Church this morning, give me the directions. I said, fine, write them down. First left, second right, over the roundabout. second right, first left. Okay, thanks. Then you put the phone down. And then you started driving, but it turns out you weren't at St Paul's Cathedral. The directions were right. Are you going to get to Revelation checks? Your starting point's all wrong. Or touch typing. I love touch typing. My dad taught me when I was 16. It's fantastic. You just sit there and just goes. It's amazing. Don't look. You just, the fingers know what to do. It's muscle memory. They know what to do. There's one thing you need to make sure of, though, and it's this. Just before you start, put your hand in the right position. One key to the left, or one key to the right. The fingers are doing the right thing. (laughs) That's nonsense. The screen is nonsense. Why? Starting point. The Bible says this, the beginning of wisdom, the foundation of wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. Reverence for God. Such a sense in your heart of who he is. Such an awe and reverence and respect and esteem for the one who cannot lie. For the one for whom nothing is impossible. For the one who makes promises and keeps them. For the one who is the beginning and the end. The fear of the Lord. If there's no fear of the Lord in your heart, you're going to err all the way. You may have learned how to live the Christian life and you know how to do this, how to do that, your directions are all right, but your starting point's all wrong. You start in the fear of the Lord. You honour and revere and respect that He is the Almighty. He's not like us. It's huge. It's a massive, massive thing. I want to look at one thing, one symptom of unbelief, then we're going to finish. And we'll do the other 13 over the next two weeks or however long. Maybe the next 13 weeks. Who knows? Symptom number one, concerning the things that God has promised to do, unbelief says we can't, and assumes inferiority. It just assumes, I'm inferior, I can't do it. Numbers 13, 31, they said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. People in unbelief are so aware of themselves, so aware of others, so unaware of God. Their speech is full of how rubbish they are. Their thoughts and speech are full of how they can't do this, how they can't do that, even over the areas where God has promised he's going to do it. And it's a shocking, terrible thing. It is, it is disgraceful. It's irreverent. But the things that you're, you're calling God a liar with your speech, if you do that, it's so vital that you don't. But that's what unbelief says. It just assumes inferiority. Faith says we can. And faith assumes superiority. Now, let me just get this right. I'm not talking about sinful superiority we you're thinking about other people. What I'm saying is this. is just this sense of You know, because you've got God with you, you can do it. You're just confident. I'm totally confident about the future of this church. Totally confident. I'm totally confident about the advance of the gospel in this area. Totally confident about what God's going to do. I've got the promises. I've got the promises. I'm totally confident we're going to see many people that are sick healed. Many miracles, people set free. I'm completely confident. God has spoken. God has said it. End of story. It's done. Now we've got to come into it. It's believing totally confident. It's not arrogance. It can come across as arrogance. It's a bit like the David and Goliath story. We'll end with this. The story of David and Goliath is beautiful. Because you've got the Israelites lined up against the Philistines, and what? these guys would just go to war every year. I mean, it was amazing. So it was time for the guys to go to war, so they just would go to war. I don't know if they knew what it was about. I don't know. Maybe they would just make something up, you know. I don't know. You know, would you call my mum something, you know I, know? I don't know. But it was just, it's war time. Let's pick a fight. So they were going, they, so they're lined up and um, it's, this was a bit unusual because instead of the normal thing where they would just kind of charge and fight this huge monster of a guy, the Philistines three metres tall, just horrendously we used to have a guy in my old church six foot eight and that was scary we're talking the ten foot here I mean just, you know and he, would just walk, he marched out every day and he said, one on one one on one, and whoever wins that side wins the war now, even King Saul, who was on the other side, who was a head and shoulders above the rest of the Israelites, he must have started slouching in his chair. Do you know? <laughs> trying to make himself look shorter, i think because everyone's looking to him? He didn't want to know. No one wanted to know. The whole of the Israelite army are gripped with fear and unbelief. And then David rocks up. David goes on an errand. His dad says to him, go take some cheese to your brothers, find out how you're doing. So he turns up with a donkey, some cheese, and uh, starts giving it the big one. He really does. He goes and he starts saying, he starts saying, so what's the king saying? The king's saying, because the king had been saying, look, whoever's gonna, whoever takes this guy out, he can have freedom from taxes, and he can have my daughter in marriage. Right, so everyone's just getting totally desperate. So, so David's like, what's the king offering? And his brother overhears him. and he says, I knew you'd turn up. You're always, always trying to make trouble. And that he hates, because there's, there's, suddenly, there's a, someone turns up with a totally different mindset. And David starts saying, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And everyone's like... I don't like it. Especially his brother. Why? Because his brother's unbelief is exposed by David's faith. So he gets angry. And it comes across as arrogance, but it's not arrogance, it's faith. Because God promised the Israelites this land. And God said, I will be with you, so be strong and be very courageous. And they're not. They're ignoring what God has said. And they're hiding in trenches and they're keeping their head down. And they're going timid and they're going scared, even though God has said, this is yours. And it's embarrassingly bad and it's disgraceful. And David turns up and David is a man who's intimate with God. He knows God. He knows the Lord. And so he turns up and the whole atmosphere changes and he's suddenly charged with the presence of God. What is this? Is faith. The whole atmosphere changes. And David says, I'll take him out. So Saul tries to put his armour on him and that. And and so first of all, Saul says, you're just a boy. He says, no problem. He says, you know, I've been out with the sheep and wolves and bears have come along. I've just done them. (laughs) Saul says, okay. He says, well, put this armour on because you don't want to, you know. And then David's sort of cranking around this armour. He's about 15, approximately 15 years old. He says, I can't wear this. Give me my sling. Down by the river, picks picks up five stones just to be on the safe side. I only use this one. He just starts running at him. He just starts running at him. And Goliath begins to curse him and mock him because you see at this point, Goliath, who is representative of Satan, is panicking and so he begins to accuse and begins to bring false prophecy to try and create timidity and fear in the heart. Satan's strategy tries to create Timothy. To you can't do it. He says, what well, am I, a dog? You come at me with a stick. I'm going to need to prophesy over him demonically. Demonic prophecy. I'm going to feed your body to the birds of the air. David just starts prophesying back. Wrong. I'm going to feed your body to the And he just starts running at him. You think, what the? You can imagine people like, what is that kid doing? <laughs> he believes God. He believes, he's, he esteems, he's got the fear of the Lord. He just runs, right. like, oh, Whack. You can just imagine. You can just imagine this mountain of a man. They see the stone land, and some people are probably thinking, Glyph won't even feel it. He's probably got one of those huge, you know, those Neanderthal things? I've got a slight one. He's probably had a huge one. I'm glad I've got a slight one. I I quite like it. But not that I spent hours looking in the mirror at the profile with two mirrors, but Davina told me. Uh, So he's got this, I can imagine he's got this huge thing, the only huge one. and And the stone just sinks in. Just sinks in there in that flesh. And then you can just see I've shot, is he is he wobbling and you can just probably see his eyes roll back into his head and then suddenly this huge man just crashes to the ground. And what seemed so terrifying and what seemed so intimidating and what seemed so impossible to overcome falls to the ground. It's through one person who believed God. We need fifty on alpha, not twenty seven. 27 won't do. We need 50 on Alpha. We need to go for it. We need to absolutely go for it. We need to win. We need to tell people about Jesus. Because God has called us here with the express charge of doing it. And we need to do it in faith, confidence, just totally aware of God. And we have to stop being afraid of people because they're just people. God is clear in Isaiah. 8. He says, don't fear them. Let me be your dread. God wants to be your dread. (laughs) Is that good? That's really good. Why? Because you will dread something. All people dread something. You'll either dread the future or you'll dread the past or you'll dread some particular person, or you'll dread some imaginary thing that could happen one day, and all of those things will keep you captivated and locked up in fear, or you can dread God. And if you dread God, you will begin to fear Him and revere Him, believe His promises, and you'll walk in freedom. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to break bread. Here's here's how we're going to do it. Here's how I want us to do it today. In a minute, I'm going to ask the tens of leaders to just come and stand round by the bread. I have a table there and there. Because some of you might want someone to pray with you. I want us to repent of unbelief. And I want us to keep repenting of it and keep repenting of it until this thing just topples down. Because it's a sin and we need to own it. And I don't want you blaming anyone for your unbelief. Okay? Don't do that. Own it. Say, God, help my unbelief. I repent of it. I'm going to be in awe of you from now on. Take the bread and take the wine. You might want one of the tens of leaders just to pray with you. Just say, can you pray with me? Maybe you're here, you're not a believer. And you've just been convicted of your unbelief today. You need to repent and trust God so you can become a David in God's army. You come up and you take the bread and the wine and you say, one of the guys, pray with me because I want to join you. I want to follow Jesus. Because I know, maybe you just know today, God's just spoken to your heart. And we're just going to, the music will be playing and I want you to just take the bread and take the wine and revere the wonderful Jesus who laid down his life for us, eh? Jesus is the David. Jesus is the great David. Jesus is the great Moses. All these people were just figures pointing to him. He's the one who's overcome Satan at the cross. He's the one who's done it once and for all. That's how we can be reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Hallelujah. We come to break bread to remember his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us so we can be cleansed and forgiven. Also, as part of our worship, if you want to give them to the offering, there won't be a pot going around today. There's a pot over at the table like at the back over there. You go and put your money in the pot.